Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new podcast interview in the New Books in East Asian Studies series. Uh, today, I am honored to talk to Ching Yang Cheng uh, from the Chinese University of Hong Kong, who, together with Wing Kung Lam, is co-editor of Globalizing Japanese Philosophy as an Academic Discipline, which was published in 2017. Um, hello, CY. Hello, Roman. Thank you so much for accepting our um, invitation. Yes, thank you for having me today. What we usually do at the beginning of the interview is um, we ask our interlocutor to um, introduce themselves. So um, if you could tell us a few things about yourself, um, how you became interested in um, Japanese philosophy, how you got involved in, in this field. So I uh, was born in Hong Kong. And uh, I had my uh, university um, course in Hong Kong. Uh, I received my uh, degree, a bachelor degree of arts, uh, working on philosophy. So in Hong Kong, we study um, Chinese philosophy, and also we study Western philosophy from uh, Plato to Heidegger. So after three years of study of Heidegger and I uh, continue to, to study philosophy in the postgraduate master's course. Uh, when at that time uh, I study uh, Mark Scheler um, phenomenologist uh, which is uh, less famous than Husserl or Heidegger but I work um, on a um, master thesis on uh, Mark Scheler. So at that time, I realized that when I studied um, phenomenology uh, or the reception of phenomenology in Asia, I realized that um, there is a long tradition of phenomenological research in Japan. But um, I think this tradition is not um well or almost completely ignored by the academia in the chinese speaking world so uh in the year 2000 i managed to uh get a scholarship to study in japan so at the time i would like to uh explore uh how the japanese philosopher um studied phenomenology and then later, um, under the uh, supervision of Professor Noe um, of uh, Tohoku University, where I studied, um, I realized that uh, a Japanese philosopher called Ishida Kitaro, um, he studied some phenomenology, uh, but actually he continued to develop his idea. So he's not just a researcher of phenomenology, but also a Japanese philosopher. So I um, spent uh, seven years in Japan and finished my uh, PhD uh, doctorate uh, dissertation on Nishida Kitaro. So after that, uh, that was uh, in 2007. After that, I came back to Hong Kong and then I uh, began my career of teaching philosophy uh, in the uh, Department of Philosophy and a couple of years ago I uh, uh, shift my department to the Jap Department of Japanese Studies so this is my uh, uh, career as a for now okay um, now uh, the, the the book um, we're we're talking about today is called globalizing Japanese philosophy as an academic uh, discipline, and um, when I looked at the structure of the of the book, I saw that there are two uh, parts. Uh, the first part deals with um, teaching and uh, research in Japanese philosophy in a global world, 
Whereas the second part uh, talks about Japanese philosophy as an um, academic discipline. And um, I would like to hear uh, more about the book, about the structure of the book, about the, uh, the contributors. Um, but uh, before that, I would like to ask you how um, this idea uh, about this book uh, came about. How, did, how was this project born? Okay. Um, that will be a long story, but I will try to make it short. Okay. And after I uh, work uh, as a lecturer in Hong Kong, and obviously I uh, began to teach philosophy, and at the same time, I, uh, as a young scholar, I need uh, to do some research about Japanese philosophy. So, um, but in the very early uh, stage of my career, of my career, um, I realized that sometimes you have a kind of con conflict uh, between uh, teaching and research. So um, there's a, um, a kind of saying that okay, uh, publish uh, or perish. So. It is that uh, most of uh, the younger scholars nowadays will spend a lot of time uh, writing philosophical papers. I myself uh, wrote a lot of papers um, when I was since I was a postgraduate student, but uh, that may not necessarily uh, be related to your teaching. So in uh, I think the first few years of my, you know, uh, career, I um, struggle a lot about this uh, conflict. And um, in my teaching, I think the teaching workload was uh, in the beginning was quite demanding. And then um, also, uh, I uh, try to teach uh, Japanese philosophy, but uh, at that time uh, we. Don't have uh, it. Didn't have um, a lot of good references, so um, it was really hard to teach. So uh, there's a turning point uh, that in 2011, um, the uh, source book, the Japanese philosophy, a source book, uh, published by, um, edited by uh, James Isaac, uh, Marado, and um, uh, uh this is I think the milestone of um, Japanese philosophical research and uh, with this uh, source book I guess uh, we can note uh, this will be a huge uh, difference in teaching Japanese philosophy so um, source books of course uh, will be a kind of teaching material but um, at the end of the day it will also shift and change um, the research uh, world, there will be more uh, research students or even scholars uh, who will be reading the source book and develop their new ideas. So to celebrate um, the publication of the source book, so we uh, uh, organize a conference. So this conference uh, is actually a celebration of of the source book, and I myself uh, was also involved in the uh, source book project. Um, so um, I, at the time, I would like to uh, um, invite uh, Professor James Heisig to come to Hong Kong and deliver a keynote speech about how the source book can um, change uh, the teaching of Japanese philosophy. And the other keynote speaker was uh, Professor uh, Fujita Masakatsu, uh, who at the time was um, the professor of the Department of Japanese Philosophy in Kyoto University. So I hope uh, we can get a balance um, um, between teaching and uh, research. And also um, we would like to uh, have uh, different the scholars from different uh, continents uh, to work together to uh, develop new ideas. That's why uh, 
and share our experience of teaching Japanese philosophy. That's why the conference was actually divided into two parts, the teaching part and the research part. And that is, uh, you know, uh, represented in the book, uh, in the first part, about the teaching uh, or the teaching experience uh, um, of Japanese philosophy in different areas. And in the second part of the book, we discuss about how Japanese philosophy can develop as a so-called academic discipline, which is uh, a kind of, you know, an, an, a kind of idea um, developed in the past um, couple of years. Um, at the time, we realized that uh, the source book is important, but it's not enough because we need to um, work on uh, a journal. We need to propose a new journal on uh, Japanese philosophy. So 2011 was the year we uh, received the uh, new journal uh, contract. So in a couple of years, uh, we will be ed editing the, the Journal of Japanese Philosophy published by Sunni Press. So this conference is quite special because this is the first time all the journal um, members uh, came together in Hong Kong and discussed what uh, we can do in the future. So with the source book published and then we have a new journal uh, to be published, we try to um, understand Japanese philosophy no longer uh, in Japan, but uh, it's now a kind of uh, global phenomenon. So we are trying to uh, develop uh, Japanese philosophy, not in a narrow sense, but we would like to um, explore different ideas of um, Japanese philosophy with scholars all over the world. So the journal is important. Um, and later we also uh, established um, a book series on Japanese philosophy. Um, so there is actually some change in the English-speaking world, and this is a kind of phenomena that I will say this is a kind of globalizing Japanese philosophy as an academic discipline, and that is a kind of uh, experience that actually happened um, um, many decades ago uh, after the publication of the source book on Chinese philosophy or the source book on Indian philosophy, the Western world actually have um, more and more uh, scholars working on Chinese and Indian philosophies. And that is not just about uh, teaching, but in research, there is um, a, a change. So we expect the publication of the Japanese philosophy source book will also uh, trigger a kind of change uh, in the research world. And that is... Um, why uh, we wanted to suggest this is a kind of, you know, academic discipline. In the past, we, we, we don't know how we can, uh, where we submit our paper on this year, uh, because we don't have a specific uh, journal on Japanese philosophy. Now we have this uh, journal, and that is, um, you know, uh, a kind of uh, background of, or, or why we, organize a conference about Japanese philosophy in Hong Kong. That's okay. Um, I'm, I have to say I'm actually glad that you mentioned the conflict uh, between what you have to teach and your research, the fact that um, the things that you have to teach, the courses that you have to teach are not always related to to your research. I think this is a conflict that um, a lot of young scholars actually relate to. I myself, I have to confess that I do relate to this, uh, to this uh, conflict. And um, going back to the to the book, uh, if uh, I understand correctly, um, you see this book together with a with a journal as uh, part of this growing, um, I don't know if it's a trend yet, um, this movement, this attempt to 
um, promote um, Japanese philosophy as part of philosophy, as part of global philosophy. Am I correct in my understanding? Um, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure if uh, we are actually doing a kind of global philosophy, but um, as far as I know, there is uh, a lot of new uh, trends to study the non-Western uh, traditions of philosophy. So um, I hope uh, it will make a difference because in the in the past, when we talk about philosophy, we just mentioned you know philosophers from Plato to Heidegger, and of course um, these are regarded as should be regarded as Japanese philosophy. Uh, sorry, Western philosophy. But um, um, the non-Western philosophers, or of course uh, also the women philosophers, uh, they are all um, almost you know. Uh, not just underestimated, but in some, in most cases, uh, completely ignored in the academic world. So, um, Japanese globalizing Japanese philosopher um, is a project uh, to make a difference in, you know, stating that there is the Japanese philosophy, and in the past it was uh, ignored. But now I think we should regulate and understand it um, in a more, uh, um, you know, um, broader sense uh, with uh, scholars from different uh, continents. We would like to uh, understand it is a, a kind of global um, phenomenon. And but at the same time, uh, I have to say I. Uh, realize um, the the problem of um, you know this globalization. We all know that globalization will lead to a kind of you know uh, single uh, standard, and and in the academic world, uh, we all actually realize that um, globalization is uh, destroying a lot of you know. Um, um, local uh, possibilities. So all these local um, universities now they uh, have to look for a kind of global standard to well standardize their um, research to uh, rank um, the universities uh, in the global ranking game. And um, that is why actually uh, we actually planned to invite Professor uh, Sakabe Megumi to Hong Kong to talk about the problem of you know globalization. But unfortunately, uh, Professor um, uh, Sakabe uh, passed away uh, before the conference. So um, it's um, to me it's. Uh, um, Really unfortunately that we couldn't uh, have him, um, and uh, with uh, Professor Sakabe's thought, um, I think we sh uh, <coughs> would like to. Um, in this book, uh, it it is a, a very nice uh, article written by uh, Professor Kobayashi uh, on Sakabe's uh, philosophy. Um, the important uh, philosophy here is that he, uh, Professor Sakabe, um, <coughs> perhaps is one of the frontiers of you know globalizing Japanese philosophy. He had a lot of uh, research students, foreign students, studied under him, and he had a lot of papers published in different languages. But he is actually at the same time, he realized the problem of you know uh, just using Western language to work on Japanese philosophy. So it could um, destroy a kind of you know traditions that uh, in you know philo philo philosophy uh, 
um, in many places. They are not doing in in a, a more you know uh, dominant language. They are not doing the philosophy in English only. So there are different places. In for example, uh, I could I can imagine in Eastern Europe, these uh, philosophers they uh, with their they study philosophy in their own language. Um, in in Hong Kong, also we study philosophy in our native Hong Kong Chinese Cantonese languages. But in you know a more uh, you know trend of globalization, um, there is a possibility that okay now we have an English journal, we have a more English uh, speaking. Um, scholars working on Japanese philosophy, but at the same time, um, we may uh, see that you know, maybe there will be no more people working on the Japanese philosophy in, in a more Japanese, you know, sense. So globalization is something that we we thought we needed to do something because if we are not setting up this journal, uh, Japanese philosophy will be um, as you know, weak as before. So we need to do something. But at the same time, we realize that when we are doing globalization, uh, globalizing Japanese philosophy, uh, we could destroy some local uh, philosophic, uh, um, you know, um, projects. So that is, I think, the two sides uh, of globalizing Japanese philosophy. At the same time, at, at the time we published this book, we hope uh, we can just bring it as a kind of uh, possibility. So we hope uh, this is a new trend of doing Japanese philosophy, philosophy in a more globalized context. But uh, we didn't develop into a world philosophy. And, and at the same time, we uh, understand there could be a problem in linking Japanese philosophy and globalization. Okay, <clears throat> I see. Uh, so, um, because you mentioned the, uh, the conference uh, and uh, the fact that uh, Professor Heisig uh, was a keynote speaker at the, at the conference you, uh, you organized, um, I remember that uh, in his uh, article, um, in his paper, which is essay, which is actually included uh, in um, in your book, it's actually the first um, essay included in the first part uh, that discusses teaching and research uh, about Japanese philosophy in a global world. Um, Professor Heisig talks about um, two major obstacles. He calls them obstacles um, that he um, identifies um, that would uh, that obstacles that prevent um, Western uh, researchers, Western scholars, Western uh, professors from including um, Japanese philosophy in their syllabus, in the, in the curriculum um, at their uh, universities. And um, if I remember correctly, I think the first obstacle that he, he mentions is this um, resistance uh, to the idea that um, something that's outside uh, the Western tradition, Western intellectual uh, history, uh, can be called a philosophy in, 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 the, in the strict sense of the word. And the, the second uh, obstacle that he, he mentions is um, the fact that many times these uh, professors, they're not uh, trained. They, um, they don't know um, how to begin training themselves uh, in a different uh, philosophical tradition. So, for example, if they're uh, specialized in uh, continental philosophy, uh, they don't uh, know how to read, interpret um, Japanese philosophy, for example. Um, is... Um, this also the um, the premise of the uh, of the first part of this uh, of this book. Um, that is, uh, of course, a very important uh, point raised by uh, Professor Heisig, and um, I think he also mentioned um, 
uh, one important point uh, by uh, Professor Kausulis. So when we talk about these kind of you know non-Western uh, philosophies, we thought that these are you know completely different. They have a different language. And they I don't know this language, so I uh, I don't know how to regulate. Uh, I don't have any reference. So some of them they prefer not to mention about these you know non-Western philosophy. But um, Professor Carl Solis mentioned this problem of, for example, um, Kierkegaard. So he's a Danish uh, philosopher. So these um, are uh, within these uh, Western traditions, but um, they will not be writing uh, philosophy in, uh, in in English, for example. So still, there are people that cannot read uh, Kierkegaard in uh, his original. Danish or German text. So um, uh, translate that is I think uh, a problem of uh, not just about you know Western or non-Western. This is a problem of uh, you know um, translation. Um, so um, this is also discussed in uh, um, Professor Heisig's paper. Can a philosophy be translated and um, also discussed by uh, Professor um, uh, Wehaler uh, in her paper about you know understanding Japanese philosophy in relationship to these um, kind of uh, translational studies. So the problem is uh, we we are working on in in the world with a kind of um, uh, with a very dominant major language that is English so uh, the source book uh, first is you know uh, translating Japanese text uh, to uh, English uh, language so we have uh, a huge group of scholars from different continents but they, the working language is English so um, that is the, the kind of uh, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, this uh, is uh, uh, what we call a globalization. So this is turning out to be an English project. But at the same time, a source book is quite interesting because later it, it was also translated into uh, Spanish. And uh, also uh, there is a, a group of scholars working on uh, Chinese uh, translation of the source book. And there's also a Korean uh, group of scholars working on a Korean translation of source book. So source book supposed to be a text in English, but now uh, um, um, there could be other um, you know, uh, scholars. Of course, they can read the text in English, but um, we can also look for uh, the, the possibilities of translating source book into different language, and that is uh, again a kind of uh, a great opportunity to understand how Japanese philosophy uh, can be translated. In some cases, it's quite tricky because in the Chinese translation, and for example, translating. Um, um, uh, or so in some cases actually uh, it's even much easier uh, to not translating the text because inside they, they wrote the text in Asian Chinese style uh, we call it the Kampun and perhaps uh, rather than translating the, the English translation back to Chinese we can actually skip this English translation and return to the original text. So this is a translation of not translating something, <laughs> a translation project uh, of understanding. There is a kind of new understanding, for example, in the English uh, translation, uh, in English translated text, but um. But different language groups may have, uh, you know, different uh, 
ideas about how they translate English uh, Japanese philosophy. So um, now uh, the situation is quite uh, interesting, um, and because of uh, this uh, source book, we triggered some um, local uh, research groups. So globalization was the beginning, but I hope it will. Uh, not turning into just a kind of global trend, but uh, in in future we hope to have more and more local scholars uh, reacting on this uh, globalizing Japanese philosophy project. Okay, uh, since you mentioned the um, local research projects, research groups, the local uh, scholars working on Japanese philosophy, um, if if you look at the list of uh, contributors to the to the book, um, if you look at their uh, affiliation, you actually have researchers from Japan, but also from Spain, um, University of Guam, for example, um, from the United States, uh, but also from uh, China, uh, also from Hong Kong, uh, and so on and so forth. So it seems to me that it's a very global and at the same time local uh, group. Uh, this you wanted this to happen, right? You you wanted to. Uh, m- m- is my understanding correct that you wanted to have a group as diverse as possible to contribute to the to the uh, book? Yes, that was our, our intention. Okay, and um, I have a question about the um, the first part of the book. Uh, first, um, focusing on teaching um, Japanese philosophy, um, I think that's one of the uh, most uh, original points of the of the book. I don't, um, I have to confess, I haven't seen this um, idea uh, discussed in a lot of other, um, other books. Uh, what was your purpose? Why did you want to uh, focus on, on this teaching uh, Japanese philosophy? Okay. Um, one uh, strict uh, forward reason is that um, Japanese philosophy, I think 10 years ago, uh, was not even taught uh, in many institutes. So it is a kind of rare experience. Uh, I think, um, well, of course, there may be more people uh, who actually taught Japanese philosophy, but uh, I think the contributors here were more or less the same. They, um, they could actually teach uh, in their own philosophy, uh, in their own universities. So uh, we tried to uh, share our experience of how to teach. Uh, at the time, we didn't have the source book, so we, we hoped we can uh, share our experience or, or or pain of you know teaching with our decent uh, teaching uh, material and also when teaching Japanese philosophy there is always a kind of problem of you know uh, how to um, select you know uh, the just for example just the Kyoto school philosophers or uh, should we include the uh, pre-modern thinkers, the Confucian thinkers, or the Buddhist uh, thinkers. So this is the kind of uh, you know practical problem that uh, we all are actually interested in, and uh, there must be a lot of um, point of discussing that. So that was uh, the original ideas. I myself uh, has been teaching. Japanese philosophy in Hong Kong for uh, a couple of years. Um, so, but before the conference, uh, I didn't have uh, didn't have a lot of chance to teach. So actually, that was also my own, uh, you know, uh, will to to learn from other uh, scholars, to learn from uh, you know how they teach uh, Japanese philosophy. I think they, they are really experienced um, scholars and um, 
And in the conference, we didn't mention about teaching of philo Japanese philosophy in Japan. So in this book, we actually invite a young scholar, um, Satofumi Kawamura, to contribute a book chapter, especially for this book, because we also would like to learn how Japanese philosophy is uh, taught in Japan or, or not taught in Japan. <laughs> Okay. Um, I have to confess, I asked this question because um, as I was going through the essays in the in the first part, um, I actually found a lot of um, ideas and a lot, of, a lot of tips, a lot of information about how to create a syllabus, how to teach Japanese philosophy. And uh, in the essays, um, there, uh, the authors discuss uh, teaching and research in Belgium, Canada, France, uh, but also in Spain and uh, English-speaking countries and also in uh, in Japan. Uh, so there's a whole, uh, it, it's a wide range of, um, there's a whole lot of information there and uh, it was very useful uh, for me. And I think it's useful for a lot of uh, young scholars who uh, start teaching um, Japanese philosophy. So um, I guess I have to thank you for this. Thank you for uh, yeah uh, point. And um, but one problem is that uh, the conference uh, was organized in two thousand eleven, and because of all different problems in looking for publication funding and delayed in receiving some of the book chapters, we uh, only managed to publish the book in two thousand seventeen. So. You may find some of the materials here uh, not, you know, uh, uh, the we we will not cannot uh, cover the latest development in in this uh, area of Japanese philosophy. But that is, I think, the general problem of you know publication. So for the latest um, developments, I think we can now rely more on the internet publication or uh, journals, um, not just about uh, the journals uh, of philosophy, Japanese philosophy, but we also have this European journal for Japanese philosophy, which is, uh, I think, a very um, important uh, project. And uh, there are um, research group behind the uh, ENOJP, is a European network of, on Japanese philosophy, they are a group of very uh, important and young scholars who are uh, eagerly working on, you know, bringing up, bringing up scholars in, in Europe and actually from outside Europe to discuss Japanese philosophy um, in their regular uh, meetings in Europe. I think next year they will have the meeting in Japan. But um, I think uh, it is also, uh, I would say this is another uh, globalizing Japanese philosophy project. <laughs> I, yes, I agree with you. Um, I think I, I have this feeling that a lot of good things are actually um, happening in this uh, field of uh, Japanese philosophy right now with, um, as you were saying, a lot of uh, young scholars uh, becoming more and more um, involved uh, and networking across uh, continents. Um, but um, going back to the book, um, I also have a question about the uh, the second part, and uh, where you have essays uh, written um, by um, different authors um, on different Japanese uh, philosophers, and um, most of the uh, I couldn't help but notice that most of the uh, philosophers. Um, that the authors write about are uh, modern or contemporary philosophers like, uh, for example, Nishida Kitaro, Suzuki Daisetsu, um, also Nishi Amane, uh, Kuki Shuzo, um, Tanabe Hajime, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but at the same time, um, I noticed that some of the authors, uh, they try to make this uh, connection, this link uh, between Japanese modern contemporary philosophy and pre-modern uh, thought, pre-modern philosophy, uh, uh, like um, 
for example, Confucianism or uh, Buddhism. And um, my question to you would be if you feel uh, that this is something uh, important, uh, you feel that this is um, to, to, to create this link between modern uh, Japanese philosophy and pre-modern Japanese philosophy. Is this something that has to be done? Is this something that's uh, important? I uh, believe that um, what we call about Japanese philosophy is not uh, limited to modern Japanese philosophy. Uh, well, perhaps in Japan, when we talk about Tetsugaku, uh, they will say, okay, uh, this is a word translated by Nishi Aname, uh, Amane, and um, uh, it is only a word uh, translated or coined in the late 19th century. So before this uh, word, trans, uh, Tetsukaku, was translated, uh, there was no, of course, no Tetsukaku, right? But um, since I believe there's a broader sense of Japanese philosophy um, uh, that will uh, be including all these pre-modern, they call it a thought, or seesaw. Um, so with a broader definition of Japanese philosophy, including the, the, the pre-modern thought and the modern or even the contemporary philosophies. So uh, I think we, we have a broader picture of what is going on about these you know, uh, uh, Japanese philosophers. And I believe that there could be some continuity, even uh, since uh, for in the modern thinkers, for example, Nishida, for example, um, he is a modern thinker in, in the so-called Kyoto School uh, uh, philosophy, but um, without all these pre-modern uh, concepts in Buddhism or um, Confucianism or even from Kokugaku, we, we, we have some difficulties in understanding Nishida. So I myself uh, would like to understand Japanese philosophy in this broader sense. And that is something I learned actually from the source book because uh, the source book uh, also include all these uh, pre-modern thought, and they believe these are also Japanese philosophers. So um, Kukai, for example, is one of the earliest uh, Japanese philosophers included in the source book. But um, uh, the interesting thing is that the Kukai... Um, may not be regarded as um, philosopher in Japan, but uh, how we can understand his death as a philosophy, this is, again, a very interesting point. Well, I also have to confess that uh, we have enough uh, book chapters uh, on the um, pre-modern uh, part uh, um, of Japanese philosophy in, in this book. So, something that uh, we would like to do in future book projects. So I hope uh, my definition is a, a kind of, you know, uh, a, a broader sense and it's a kind of working uh, definition that we can include uh, and, you know, um, disciplines. So uh, one uh, interesting uh, group of thinkers would be the uh, for example, the Minsukugaku, the folklore studies uh, thinkers, they are not included in in the philosophy textbook or, or, or text, but uh, maybe their thoughts can also be understood, uh, understood uh, as a philosophy. One important thinker could be uh, Yanakita Kunio. Uh, he's not a philosopher, but uh, maybe we can understand his ideas in a more philosophical way. So these will be the kind of uh, Japanese philosophy we may develop uh, in the future. So your um, approach to Japanese philosophy is uh, very inclusive. Um, not only modern philosophy, but also pre-modern texts or texts from um, other fields. Um, 
Okay. Um, I have one last uh, question um, about the book. Uh, if you want your readers to take away something, one thing uh, from your book, uh, what would that thing be? What do you want your readers to, to, to take away from, from this book? Um, one uh, um, important uh, idea uh, here in, in the book will be um, Japanese philosophy um, as a kind of, um, well, of course, it is a, a theory. It is a kind of um, philosophical uh argumentations and thought and th and theories and um all these kind of you know we call it a theoretic uh theoretical philosophy but i hope uh we also demonstrate that um philosophy is not just a kind of theory we need to understand how it uh changed the world and in this book, we, we try to demonstrate that we try to at least uh, uh, teach Japanese philosophy. The teaching is, is not just um, a theory, but it's an action. Um, teaching Japanese philosophy is not just you know reading the text only, but uh, in, as in some of our contributors' mentions, we need to have some actions of you know visiting some site um, or to understand uh, how these Japanese movement can uh, act on their everyday uh, uh, living. So I hope uh, they can understand this Japanese philosophy is not just a theory but would be a kind of uh, practice or action. And that is, I think, one important point mentioned also by, uh, for example, Professor Marado uh, in his other article. He mentioned that Japanese philosophy is, uh, of course, a bunch of theories, but uh, it, it is a kind of new movement that we would like to make it more so-called practical. So that is also the one of the points I would like to mention. And I would like to have our readers to think about it. And perhaps, um, if possible, we can act uh, or to do Japanese philosophy um, in the future. Not just about reading the text, but we, we call into actions after studying Japanese philosophy. Okay, so not just read, but also act. Okay. Okay. Um, now, um, we're kind of running out of time. We're approaching the, the end of this uh, interview. And I actually wanted to ask you um, about your plans for the future, what's on the horizon for you. I know we, um, we actually met um, this summer at a conference in uh, Mexico, and uh, we started talking a little bit um you told me a, a little bit about your plans for the for the future if you could uh give us uh some details about um what's on the horizon for you perfect and uh it was a great uh academic meeting uh in mexico um uh during this uh seminar um i deliver um talk on uh, philosophy uh and disaster so um we knew that earlier this year in mexico there was a, a huge earthquake and um and and also uh a week before the conference there was also a huge earthquake in osaka and um when coming back to this book, uh, it was published in 2011. So that was also the year of the Great East Japan Earthquake. So um, after these uh, three eleven, I uh, began to think about what actually uh, philosophy is. 
hypothesis. And just a, uh, as mentioned earlier, it's just a, a theory about uh, different philosophers, or is that a kind of philosophy that can um, be related to our contemporary world? This is a world full of, you know, uh, not just disasters, but also now we have uh, this problem of um, um, uh, wars, uh, conflicts, and, you know, um, the problem of capitalism and our, you know, this is a world full of different, you know, uh, you know, injustice and inequalities. So, um, so I propose we can, uh, based on, you know, uh, for example, Wajiji's uh, reflections on uh, this uh, pilgrimage to the Asian temples uh, in Japanese, Koji uh, Junne. So, in reading uh, Wajiji's text, uh, I came out with a conclusion that doing reading philosophy is, of course, important, but at the time we can also do philosophy by visiting uh, temples. Or the shines. So these kind of visit, um, we call it a pilgrimage. It's of course sounds like a, just like a religious practice, but uh, I would like to further develop it as a kind of philosophy, uh, which is not just about um, uh, doing, uh, not just about um, reading texts, but uh, but it is about how we can. Um, um, we collect something which is uh, completely forgotten in the world. So in going into the temple, we can try to read um, the forgotten uh, traditions of, of example, Buddhism. That was uh, Wachiji's uh, project. Or if we uh, visit some temples destroyed by a tsunami uh, after the 3.11, we can um, understand there is a, a proper problem of you know uh, recovering or the problem of um, reconstruction uh, in the contemporary Japanese society. So philosophy is not just about reading the text, but we can do Japanese philosophy uh, in visiting all these uh, places. There could be a famous temple or a completely ignored temple. Um, that is the kind of uh, philosophy that I am working on, the, the philosophy of pilgrimage. So uh, we also have uh, our good friends and colleagues, uh, Takeshi Morisato. He's also now working on this uh, Shikoku pilgrimage project. And... Um, was also a project uh, to me highly important, and this is also a chance after uh, this, you know, pilgrimage, and then we may also come back to this uh, Kukai's philosophy. So again, now we we can come back to the text of Kukai, and then we can do philosophy in the temples. So that is the kind of uh, philosophy. Uh, um theory and actions that we can uh, work on, uh, work together in the future. Mm -hmm. So it's um, a philosophy of pilgrimage, uh, but at the same time, a philosophy through pilgrimage. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Uh, as you were uh, saying earlier, not just reading, not just thinking about philosophy, but also acting. Yeah, and as now uh, we are, since we are teacher, we are teaching Japanese philosophy. So uh, in teaching Japanese philosophy, it is already a kind of action. So of course, there are different teaching styles. People may just read a, a paper in his uh, lecture. But um, I, I hope I can develop a, a kind of teaching style of not just uh, finishing a text in a semester. A teaching could be a kind of continual uh, way of understanding uh, philosophy. So teaching is inside the classroom, and at the same time, we can do the teaching outside the classroom. 
So this is the kind of action that I um, am also doing, and I believe that you are also doing the same uh, in in your classroom and outside mm-hmm. the classroom, of course. <laughs> yes. Um, <clears throat> going back to um, our uh, discussion in uh, in Mexico, um, I remember we talked a bit about. Um, Japanese philosophy, but also about other uh, traditions, um, about including, trying to include, for example, in this um, idea of world philosophy, in this concept of world philosophy, of also including not only Japanese philosophy or Chinese philosophy or Indian philosophy, uh, but also local intellectual traditions like um, Latin America and, and, and so on and so forth. Is this um, something that you plan to work on or is it another uh, direction of your research? Or So um, the kind of, uh, for, that would be related to um, how we can understand or we think about philosophy through pilgrimages. So if, if pilgrimage is not just about Japan or in Japan, there are other uh, destinations of pilgrimage that we can trigger uh, other kind of philosophical thinking. So uh, these pilgrimage may include, for example, uh, some temples in uh, Hong Kong or in China and in uh, in not far future. So actually in January, uh, I'm going to work with Actually, one of the contributors of this book um, with uh, Gary Onkoff, I will work with him again to bring students to uh, different places in Japan, Hong Kong, and China. We are doing a pilgrimage to uh, to uh, study how um, philosophy and um, different uh, pilgrimage can link together. So we are go- going to visit uh, places. Uh, this destroyed, devastated by tsunami in in the Tohoku area in Japan. Also, we are also going to uh, Nagasaki, Hiroshima, um, to let the students understand what is going on after these atomic bombs. And also, we are trying to recall some lost uh, heritage in Hong Kong. And then uh, in China, we are going to visit some. Uh, Zen or the Chan temples <coughs> in Canton province and also uh, to study what happened in uh, Nanjing <coughs> so this sounds like um, you know well it is not, not my plan but uh, Gary and really would like to uh, travel all these places in just three weeks time so that will be a very uh, demanding trip But I guess uh, we can actually learn a lot from this pilgrimage. And I always believe that reading is important, but uh, after reading, it is always important to to go to the exact location and site to to understand what is going on. So this is uh, the kind of ideas you can find in Japanese word uh, Gempa, So Gamba is a place, but it is also a, the bar is a place, but Gamba is like the place in front of you. So philosophy, what is the Gamba? The Gamba, I think for many of us, this is the classroom. Some of them, they prefer to stay in the office because they think research is more important than teaching. But, but I believe there's supposed to be a balance. And also, The camper is also outside the campus. So I hope we can find some way of doing philosophy if we travel to the temples or even to some of the places ignored by all these, you know, uh, heritage recommendations. There's still the campus. We, we can always find something. Even in the neighborhood, in our own neighborhood, there could be some kind of... Um, you know, places that will trigger our philosophical thinking. 
Okay. Um, thank you very much. Um, we're running uh, out of time. We're going to have to stop the uh, interview. Thank you very much for talking to us. Um, good luck with um, all your uh, research projects from now on. Uh, for our listeners, um, we were uh, talking to Ching Yun Cheng from the Chinese University of Hong Kong, who together with uh, Wing Kang Lam is co-editor of Globalizing Japanese Philosophy as an uh, Academic Discipline, a book that was uh, published in 2017. But uh, as you heard um, in the interview, uh, it's based on a conference that um, took place in 2011. Um, thank you very much, uh, CY. Thank you, uh, Roman, uh, for having me uh, today with you. And I enjoyed talking. Uh, to you and hope we can uh, continue our, our uh, dialogue in future. Um, let's hope so. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, reading your next book. Thank you so much. <laughs>